going to make an assumption and you tell me if I'm wrong. You feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. I know it's true. There are always too many things to do and too little time. If you're like me, your boss will walk down the hallway and shout, go home, Beltran. That's why I am telling everyone about the 40-hour workweek with Angela Watson. Angela was a guest on this very podcast back in season one, and she shared her ideas for managing your time, teaching, and stuff to help you make the most of your time at work while making time for home too. But that was just the beginning. In her membership, The 40-Hour Workweek, Angela helps you focus on what matters to have a purposeful and productive workday and then go home. Angela helps teachers find, on average, 11 hours a week that they can take back for themselves while still being a great teacher. The best part is that Angela has a new membership, especially for coaches. She partnered with my friend and coffee buddy, Nicole Turner of Simply Coaching, to create the 40-hour work week for coaches. Check it out at buzzingwithmissb.com slash 40-hour week and get your time back. Coach, are you feeling like your teachers are just not interested in your support? Have you struggled to get into classrooms and impact positive change? Do your teachers turn the other way when they see you coming and put you off over and over again when you offer to visit their classrooms? So many coaches face these problems and they all revolve around one thing, the culture of coaching. If your school doesn't have a coaching culture, it can feel like you're bending over backwards to please everyone while actually accomplishing nothing. This summer, my favorite annual event, the Simply Coaching Summit, is all about building a coaching culture at your school. This online conference for instructional coaches is on July 11th, 12th, and 13th, and it will give you everything you need to change your school one step at a time. The summit is three days of keynotes, live workshops, pre-recorded sessions, and live meetups. I'm giving a keynote about how getting curious can change the culture of your school, but there is so much more to the summit that you have to see it for yourself. Head to buzzingwithmissb.com summit to save your spot. The best part is that you have six months to watch the videos. So if your summer plans didn't include some cozy PD at home on the couch, you can watch them when you're back to school. See you at the summit 2022. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, and welcome to episode 102, Reflecting on Our Leadership with Dr. Jill Brown. This month, we are learning all about looking back, reflecting, helping teachers reflect, and reflecting for our own thoughts about different topics. I invited Dr. Brown to chat with me today about this really important idea. How do we look back at our own coaching leadership, reflect on it, and make a plan to grow in the future? Sometimes our work is such a whirlwind, especially at the end of the year, and that self-reflection that is so important can get lost in the shuffle. But we know that good leaders are always looking to grow by thinking about what they've done before and how effective it was. So coaches, help me welcome Dr. Jill Brown to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited about our conversation. Me too. So can you introduce yourself to your list, to our listeners and talk a little bit maybe about your journey to, you know, how you ended up doing the work you're doing, you know, talk a little about who you are. We would love to get to know you. Absolutely. 
Again, my name is Jill Brown. I am a mother of a college freshman, which feels so weird to say. I am a wife of 22 years. And in my professional life, I am an assistant superintendent of special services. I've been in that role for two years, and I've been 11 years overall in district administration. And you know, when I reflect and think about who I am, um, I think a big part of that is, is a little bit about how I grew up. So I am a military brat, and my dad was stationed in North Dakota for all of my kindergarten through 12th grade. And so I grew up in a frigid landscape of which I did not have family. And I was a free and reduced lunch kid the entire time I was there. And that that speaks to what happens a little bit later in my life and why I, I have some, I have some concerns sometimes when people talk about kids who come from maybe backgrounds that don't have as much money in them and make assumptions about what that means. I actually had six majors in college. So I'm actually the first college graduate in my family. And I had, I should say I had six, I didn't finish with six. <laughs> I had six. Uh, I started pre-med and started with that idea that I was going to help people and realize I don't even like science. So that only lasted for a semester. And then I've done political science. I've done psychology. I did a, quite a few things before I landed in, you know what? I really like teaching. I really didn't want to teach. I didn't want to be um, more stereotypical female who was teaching. And that is what I did. It was my passion. So I went to school to be a language arts teacher and in my student teaching, I had honors English kids and I had kids in a typical 12th grade class that English class that all the kids had to take. And I didn't like teaching honors at all. You know, other people thought it was so lucky that I was teaching that and I didn't like it. I enjoyed the kids in my other class who struggled and really needed reteaching, who really needed connection much more. And that's what I enjoy doing. So I actually went right back and got a master's in special education and began my first teaching job in January and loved it. I've never taught younger than eighth grade. And so I started high school and then I did middle school. And then at some point, one of my principals thought that I might be good in administration. I went and got a degree in secondary school principalship. Realized that still my passion is in special education. And so I got my doctorate in educational leadership and policy analysis. And I've been in special education ever since trying to work to marry the, they're not two different worlds, but sometimes they're treated as such. So really trying to spend that time and talk about how these things work together and really trying to show people that everybody has a right to a good quality education, no matter where they are at. So I've spent, this is my 24th year in special education. This point feels weird to say that number. And I am glad to still be in special education and always looking for ways that we can change and improve what we do. So that's a little bit about me. Yes. Thank you. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's such important work. Um, and you're right. It can seem like an afterthought. It's always like, how are you Mm -hmm. going to differentiate, differentiate this lesson for this group of children? You knew you had the whole time. (laughs) Yes. Truth. Yes. So thank you for doing that work. Mm -hmm. I would love to talk to you today about, about reflecting and what it looks like to be a reflective leader. What do you think it means Mm -hmm. to be a reflective leader? 
I think one of the first things that I think about is that it's understanding that I think one of the big tenets before I even get into that is understanding that the leader is not the center of all the action where something where, where things are taking place that my role is to coach and frankly, to be coachable from everybody else that I work with. And so to do that, to be truly reflective, you know, obviously there's a piece of that that's self-aware. I, I need to understand my strengths and my limitations. And within that, I need to think through whether those are limitations that I should try to hone and try to work on, or whether it is a limitation to that there's no need for me to learn and hone that more. I have, there are other people to do that. My job is to help coach them. I'm not no longer here to learn and be the sponge of everything that exists. I'm not going to know what it looks like in early childhood special education that I haven't that I haven't taught. I'm not the expert in that. I'm not even the expert anymore into what I used to teach. And so I don't do that every day. And so that there are some limitations I need to know that education is not the same as the last time I was teaching. And while that's good information that's informed me, it doesn't necessarily inform what I need everybody else to do. So I need to be self-aware. I need to know how everything, what everything I do that affects everything else, whether it's positive or negative, what is my role in an action or words or communication that came back to me? And what is my part in that whole interaction that happened? As a reflective leader, you need to be an observant leader. I need to be able to look and figure out from body language, from tone, from reaction, the different people I'm working with and coaching and having conversations with and where are they at and where are they coming from? And I have to be observant in that because I'm not the most important piece in that leadership that is happening at the moment. And I need to know my staff really well, and I'm not in a, in a small school district. So I have to be able to find ways to know my staff. So I know what they need from me and how I can make what they do better, whether that is the idea they have, and I have my hand in the resources they need to get there or whether I'm seeing that that doesn't, this doesn't look like it's feeding them and how can I help them with their own job satisfaction in, in, what, in what's happening there. And so I need to be self-aware, I need to be observant. I need to be really flexible in how I work with staff and how I respond to them. So when I'm thinking about approaching a conversation, I'm thinking through the person I'm having that conversation with. It's not about, well, Jill Brown likes to start all of her meetings with this, this statement or this sentence that doesn't work for everybody. And it's not about me. So what do I need to do to enter a conversation with somebody? And I have to know enough about, I may not know your favorite drink. I may not know what Sonic drink you want, but what do I know about you and you're at what feeds you while you're working. And to do some of that, I, I interview most, almost all special ed teachers in my own district, um, trying to get pieces of, of what people, um, what, what feeds them and what makes them what they are. 
And then I need to be a good communicator and I am a true introvert. So that is about honing and practice and um, really get wanting to get to know people and feeling passionate about that piece that I'm in a people business and it's students are so important, but so are they, the staff that works with my students to get them where they need to be. And so I have to be able to listen. I really believe her in voice modulation um, and, and talking calmly when you need to be calm, showing excitement when you want to show how excited you are about something. But it really is that idea that I'm the observer. I'm looking for ways to help get the best out of somebody without manipulation. This isn't a, a manipulation tool to get my way or get what I want. It really is trying to figure out what works best for that student and what projects feed them. If that's what they, if that's what they're looking at, what do they need to feel like they can connect better with their students? And so really trying to take that time and think through all the different people there are and try to put yourself to the side a little bit in that whole process that I am a leader who has a vision for what I want to see and everybody's a part of that. And, but that in the end of the day, I am no longer the one who enacts every part of that vision anymore and understanding that piece that, um, is, is super important. If the, if you're a leader administrator out there, there isn't coachable, you've got a problem. You have to be coachable. It gone. Thank goodness should be the days of your iron will over things. It really is about people that we work with. That is such good advice. And I feel, you know, many, many of my audience members are instructional coaches. And I feel like that mm-hmm. is like really one of the hardest shifts in moving out of the classroom and into a coaching yeah. position, because you do have to put yourself, it's not about how would I do it? No, it's not what it's about. And that is so hard to, to shift. Some people maybe are naturally gifted at that. Many of us are not. And that is such a hard shift to make because no. you, you feel like you've gotten really good at certain things in your own classroom, but that doesn't mean that that's the way it needs to look in every room for that room to be effective. And that's a right. hard shift to make. It is. There's multiple ways to get to the same place. And I think it was hard for me. Like I love professional development and I'm no longer the one who goes. <laughs> so it, it's trying like, yeah, the, it's time for other people to grow in that way. I grow for what I learned from them when they come back mm-hmm. and what they share with me, but I no longer need to be the, the repository for all that info. Wow. I do think it's so hard. We want to continue doing what got us that next role or that structure. Like you're probably a superstar teacher. And now it's trying to take that, take that to a different level. Like it, I'm trying to grow that same type of person, but in their own personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to go about it. You mentioned, and I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned interviewing every special ed teacher in your district. Do you mean you initially interview them whenever they get the part or the job or the part? It's not a play, it's not a play. Or do you mean, do you do something ongoing in an ongoing way to get to know them? What did you mean by that? Both. So I do the initial um, for almost all in the district. Um, sometimes I have to step back on that a little bit and, and, and have my director do more of that. But I have done, I've hired, done most of the hiring here for 
oh gosh, the past 11 years. And so um, that's one way to meet people. It's also one way for me to figure out, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're hungry, when you're first starting any job, you'll take that position that maybe isn't your dream, mm-hmm. you know? And so the baby, I've got a student, you know, somebody's teaching cross cap, but really, would like to be in some kind of autism program. And if I know that, that helps me know how to try to get them there mm-hmm. and, and how to do those things. There is an ongoing piece. We're, we're a Microsoft Teams district. So I have a Teams that I share with all the special services staff of the district. And I regularly communicate through that mode with staff. Um, and I put out information to them. Sometimes it's one of my silly videos off Instagram. Sometimes it's something more heartfelt. But I try to find ways to make connection and try to get some connection back to be able to um, kind of get a, a more of a pulse about where people are, um, throughout the year. Okay, great. Yeah. I was wondering about that because that's something that I know, I mean, coaches struggle with that as well, getting Mm -hmm. to people who are maybe not as excited about getting to know them. (laughs) Right. Oh, of course that's human nature. So true. Not not everybody wants to know their uh, friendly central office administrator. It's okay. (laughs) No, no. Or even the coach down the hall. That's right. (laughs) Very true. So as a school leader, Should we be seeking input for reflection on our work? You know, who can this input come from? How can we ask for it meaningful ways? What are your Mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, we're, we're human. We best, we definitely need input. I, you know, I worry when we don't get input, you know, in our lives, we're the star of our own show. And if you don't get input, you might be a star of a show that nobody wants to watch. (laughs) And so you really got have to get input into what's happier or it's going to be very, very skewed. There's many ways you could do that. And you have to do use many, many ways to get there. Not everybody is going to, um, want to provide you feedback. That's for some people will be embarrassed to find you feedback. Um, some will be worried. will only give you response that maybe they think you're looking for Mm -hmm. and might not be really what you want. Um, I think it's, it's good. I, I, I think you have to do what works for you. There are colleagues that I talk to that I know will, will tell me things straight and that we can keep it, we can keep it quiet between the two of us, but it's like, you know, heck, I just did that professional development. Did, did that go well? I saw some people talking, you know, were they saying some things? I think you need some of that feedback. You need to be approachable. So I will take comments, positive and negative. Um, and I think that's only fair. I do have staff that would want me to know if they don't like something. And I take that information as well. I, you know, I'm at, I'm at district leadership. So I actually look at social media that I tell all my teachers don't pay attention to. I go look at it because I do want to know people that are unhappy and what they're thinking. I think that helps me stay out of my own group think, you know, as educators that we we all think it should be a certain way. So that, that helps me too. Um, I think it is, you know, some of that feedback you're getting, isn't going to be direct. You're going to get it off those feelings that you have when you're Mm -hmm. talking with somebody, whether they want you there and you hone that over time in your relationship about how that, you know, how that's going. I think you talk to principals, how did they, how are staff telling you that they feel about partnering with me? Um, do they want to part with me? Did it feel weird to them that I was in there? Um, you know, what are you hearing? I think any and all feedback you can get, even if it's something that you might minimize, 
um, a little bit like social media. It tends to be the same group of people. Um, you might minimize part of it, but I still think it's good information to take in about how, how you're doing, but you have to have the feedback. Again, I always worry about being the star of my own show and you can be the heroine in it, or you can think that you're awful, but regardless, you need other people to help you mm-hmm. with how to help coach others. It's such a person bound business, no matter how you look at it in education, that we have to have ways of eliciting information from people. For me, that's, that's parents too. That's questionnaires. And you wish you could spend more time talking to people. There are people that I do get into good conversations with, but I'm not picking up the phone and just calling random people either. So it tends to be for a reason why we're talking, but make sure you're talking to a variety. So you're not only hearing only the good or only the bad. You need to hear a good mixture to know if you, if you need that to inform what you do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what role does data play in your self-reflection and what data could be helpful as people are thinking about this? Yeah, it it goes back to, it really depends on what your definition of of data is. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a special ed person. So sometimes ours is, is pretty narrow um, numbers and what it looks like on a, on a chart. But I will tell you that I'm going to take a broader view of data. So Yes, there, there's data that I look at that's pure numbers. I'm looking at trends for how we're doing on different standards. I'm looking for trends about how students with diff- different disabilities do. I'm looking for data trends on my placement of kids in general ed versus special education. I'm looking at discipline attendance. I'm looking at all that. But in being a reflective leader, it's also important, though, to even look at anecdotal data that people in my field are not going to be super thrilled about mm-hmm. because anecdotal data is filled with bias. Mm-hmm. But to be reflective, sometimes I need to know the bias that's in there to know how I'm going to approach the situation so that if I have um a situation where let's say it's behavior, behavior is hard to keep bias out of, um, just as a student, um, you know, gets escalated. So do teachers. It's just at a lower level. But if you look at any of those escalation curves, we follow that curve with a student. So when I'm getting a written information, that's more anecdotal, I'm going to get bias in it. It tends to make the staff member look good. And the student looked like they were non-responsive or they escalated. Mm-hmm. And that helps me ha- know, though, how to enter that conversation. So if, if we need to make a change about what has happened with student behavior, I now know where that person's thinking. And so that helps me know what where to go and how to get involved in that. I'm not coming in going, wow, you know, we, we messed up today. They're not ready to hear that, but the fact is we all mess up. And so sometimes those are uncomfortable reflections that we have to make. So I, I will take anecdotal just to give me an idea of, of how to go. It doesn't tell me a whole story. Isn't going to tell me exactly and how to, it's not gonna tell me how to intervene on somebody if there's too much bias in there, but I want to see all the trend data we have, but I want to want to see that over multiple years 
because we know there are so many variables to what it is that we do. So it is not fair to say your kids last year did better than your kids this year. May not be the same type of kids. It probably wasn't at all. And those, that is it enough to take a look at. I'm, it needs to get way more in depth. Who came, who is in our class, what it is that we're able to do. What does the discipline looking like in there? And we're going to take lots of information to try to figure it out. It is time consuming though. So it's where we need to have people like coaches and administrators to help go through all that data. And hopefully that's a big support that we can provide to the teachers themselves, that's, it's just a lot to go through and figure out what it really means at the end. And know that that while that data is telling you information about where we might need to focus more attention on, it isn't telling you how to approach that. And I think it's important to know that you have to have both of those pieces when you're being reflective, I can't go in and only think about the human I'm talking to. I also have to think about where we need to be and how we need to get there. I have to have both pieces, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes, it very much makes sense. I agree completely because the human element gives you all the context. It gives you Mm -hmm. all the understanding of, of what's going on in the classroom and, and what's how people are responding to the work that you've done with them. But if you don't have numbers, then that could be, like you're saying, it could be skewed or it could be very isolated or it could be um, not really representative of the big picture. Mm-mm. It could be like a um, one isolated event that you're really fixated on because we do this. You're we, so right. Yes. <laughs> we're like, this is this interaction that I had and this represents everything because it either bothered us or we felt really good about it, whatever it is. And um, with actual multiple uh, sources of information, if we get input from teachers, if we get numbers and we take a look and see, is that a pattern or is that an isolated incident? Or was there something about that incident we want to replicate? And maybe we can try what happened there in more situations. Uh, But without the big picture, we can't really make good decisions. No. And that's why we need people. There's no computer or program that could do all of this for us. It is what we do because it's all people. There's no product. It's, it's all people that we're doing is messy. And so there is a lot of analysis, a lot of trying to figure out, does this say what I think it says? And sometimes we don't know for a while. It could take us a few years to figure out, does this real, this is strategy really work with the vast majority of kids? That could take a while to figure out if that's really true or not. Yes. It used to drive me up the wall when people would look at data, especially data for special ed students. And they would say, look, this means this child has gaps in this area and this area and this area. And they would find all the areas. And I'd say, you know what it means? It means the child is reading three grade levels behind. Mm -hmm. They, They didn't struggle with those specific questions. They struggled to read. And that, so you're not, you're not understanding without looking at the child, you're not understanding what any of this information means. You're pulling out specific responses and saying, oh, they didn't understand how to answer this kind of question. When in reality, they had no idea what that question was even asking them to do or many of the other questions. That is so correct. I was just, I just had to be with the administrator. We talked about, you know, they're talking about how they can't write, but when you look at, you know, because especially we get down to the individual in-depth data that's beyond the curricular piece when we're doing some of our testing that mm-hmm. we could go back and say, actually, the kid doesn't have a writing problem, or at least I can't tell you that they do. Mm-hmm. What I can tell you right now is that their processing speed and their working memory 
is in the tank and writing requires a lot of that. So I don't know if it really is a writing issue, but I do know that there's things we need to put in place for processing speed and working memory, because otherwise we're going to, we're going to put all of our strategy in the wrong place. Yeah. And we're going to think it's not going to, it's not working. Like the writing's not getting better because you still haven't dealt with these other things that are going on with the kiddo. That's why the underlying reasons, the causes for what you're seeing on paper. Yes. I and so that. you nearly need your data to get in there and see, does it mean what I think it does? And not just say, I think I have a kid with a writing disability. I don't know that you do yet. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. may have something else. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a good point. And I feel like as coaches, we are often responsible for debriefing data with teachers Mm -hmm. and for using that data to set goals and for making action plans. And without having a clear understanding, we cannot do it effectively. That's such a good point. Right. Are there any reflective questions that you have found especially helpful in getting perspective on coaching work or on working with teachers? Yeah, there are. And these are, these are hard. I think, um, when I'm thinking when my, when my own reflection, when I'm working with different staff, I think one of the first things that I think through personally myself is I, I know sometimes when I'm getting involved, I want you to think when, when I'm getting involved more in depth, something isn't working well. You know, they're not calling me in when everybody knows exactly what they're doing. They're calling me in because there's a roadblock here. Um, it doesn't need to be a personality roadblock. There's just a roadblock that exists and they, they need help through it. And so one of the first things I try to think of through is when I see people that are upset or angry, cause that's typically what I'm going to walk into or worried that I'm going to be mad about something, especially if they don't know me or it's not somebody in special ed who does know me. It is why do, why do they feel this way? Or why do I feel this way? So as I feel myself getting upset, you know, when you're coaching somebody who doesn't want to be coached, when you're trying to coach somebody who's mad that you're there to coach, or wants you to coach them on something that you don't think they need help with, that you think they need help with something else. Why, why do they feel that way? And why do I feel the way that I feel? I think it's part of why, what I have to reflect on. What are my preconceived notions and why do I feel this way about coaching this particular person? And um, we are not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay, (laughs) but we have to know what place part we play in this whole piece. And so I always want to think on that when things don't go well, I want to be able to say, well, that didn't go well, but don't leave it there. (laughs) I need to be, what else could have I, I have done? Um, what could have I done differently? What could have I done to elicit a different response again, not through a manipulation, but did something I say trigger something in somebody else? Did I make a poor word choice? Cause you know, when we're angry, just like if I got to argue with my husband, every word choice is super important. Mm-hmm. And so did I say something in my moment of not paying as much attention and I helped uh, create a situation what more information could I have gathered? I think there are times I've walked into st- into things making an assumption mm. that wasn't maybe the correct assumption. Yeah. Um, maybe I've heard rumors about somebody and I just feel like they're probably not a strong teacher, but that actually had nothing to do with the situation. Or maybe that was just a rumor and they're actually fine in that area. And I made an assumption it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Or I made an assumption about a kiddo that they had, and it was a wrong assumption to make. 
and what skills do I need to develop? So I think you start off with, what do I have to do with what's happening here? Always, (laughs) always, always. Why do I feel the way they do? And why do they feel the way they do? You got to be able to reflect on somebody else and what you think is happening. Mm -hmm. But also, what do you need to develop and what could you do differently? And it doesn't matter. You, you, we can't get stuck into who was right or who was wrong. It really is about just in that human conversation and connection, what didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. And could we have gotten anywhere else? Or really, did we? the best thing was to do was to walk away for a bit and come back and reflect on it later. But I always think you've got to take it back to yourself and what did I do? And some, not everybody wants to do that. And it can be hard to do sometimes, um, but you have to. It, it's hard to do it. And it's so important. It's both things. Mm-hmm. So those are such good questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the mistakes that we make as we think about our own work and how we can plan for future growth? What are we doing wrong? Well, I think the first thing is it's our, it's our own biases back to our own story. We are the stars of our own story. And so what happens when we do that is the mistakes we make come in within our own bias. Mm-hmm. And so we start to make assumptions about who's going to be easy to coach and who's not, who's doing their job and who's not. And we filter that through ourselves and our own values and our own ways of doing it. So, you know, gosh, I didn't like how direct that teacher was. And I would have never been that direct. I didn't like the way that they taught um, valve, they just taught blends. I didn't like the way their approach to it. I didn't like how they, how they had this conversation with the kid, even though it worked for them, because sometimes different things work for different people. There's more than one way to get there. So I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes we have is filtering everything for only our eyes and not stopping to look at the context in which everything happened and unfolded in a classroom. So when I'm seeing something in the classroom that I don't think looks good, I need to think through and look at the kids. What are they getting or not getting out of what's happening? What does the teacher probably see? And what do they think? I'm trying to put myself into all those situations because I do have to figure out sometimes, am I being persnickety about something that doesn't need to be? And really the kids are getting it because there's something within their relationship that I just haven't been a part of that is working for them. Um, and I really need to be able to take that when we're looking at the mistakes we make, I think also, gosh, sometimes we become so unsure of ourselves and why would anybody want to listen to us that we also create our, another mistake that we make, which is not valuing ourselves and the knowledge that we have to share. And so sometimes then you might shy away when you shouldn't shy away, when you should partner with somebody getting, um, you know, feeling like, um, gosh, that person's got more experience than me. And I, I feel unsure, even though you, they may need a coach your relationship. It just may be a different type of relationship, um, depending on, on what needs to happen. So not being so unsure of ourselves. I think planning for future growth though, in those is looking at your areas of that you need to grow in your own biases and figuring out what skills you want to develop from there. So lately for me, it's all been about how to have better conversations with people. And it's not that I'm terrible at it. I'm always meeting new humans, right? And I'm meeting different generations of people. 
Mm-hmm. And their takes are different. And so I'm constantly looking at what is a different way to enter that conversation. When I decide to do something like that, when I'm looking at how I need to grow, I immerse myself, but in different ways, I no longer always feel like I've got time to read books. I do read some, but never I can I read all the good information that I want to read. So I am looking at podcasts like your own, like I did listen, you, you have some on effective communication and I did listen to them on my plane ride to see my mom. I will get anything for any, I'm looking everywhere. What are some good things I've heard from people on effective communication? I will then, I will look at podcasts. I will look on Instagram for people that are talking about this and and getting that information, those smaller bits. You could find that stuff on TikTok too. People making little videos about how to do that. Eight second bites are good for me. I try to immerse myself in all the different ways and then try to practice those. So, but for me, it started with, gosh, I don't know if I'm connecting with the next generation of people that are closer to my daughter's age. And I need to work on that. And my gosh, too many of them see me like a mom. Oh no. So I'm trying to figure out how do I connect so that I understand their values. And I think once you realize that that's that looking beyond yourself, I am not trying to be the administrator. Who's like, they need to know my style. I need to know them. I need them. I need what they have to infuse. I need their relationships with our next generations that we're taking through school right now. So I think while you're finding those mistakes we make in our own story and being the star of it, or maybe being unsure of ourselves, you've got to take those and look for where do I want to take my next growth opportunity? And I always tell people like, I will retire when I'm done growing. I can no longer do this job. Like being a the leader of anything is, is not the be all end all of yourself as a human. And so I'm constantly looking for ways to do what I do better and coming to um, the knowledge in the past several years that what I do is not because my vision is better than anybody else's. It's about how I can help coach people and spending the time doing that. And then that is what I want the face of administration and leadership to be. And that you might be an instructional coach because you were an awesome teacher, but you need the skill to do the coaching piece Mm -hmm. to help people do the magic in their own way that you were able to do in your own classroom. And it's trying to find those ways and hone ourselves the whole time. Mm -hmm. That's so great. Um, I love that reflection that you made. And I love the way you talked about how you're learning about it because you're right. You know, we read books, but you can get so much information in short little pieces if you know where to look online. And Mm -hmm. I have like, I actually have an Instagram folder. um, You know, you can save stuff. Yes, I do. Yeah, right. People I, do, I do that. Yes. Isn't it great? You can put all it is. everything you learn. You, you make a little folder for it and you're like, this is everything I saw about this topic. And you know, whenever I was giving workshops to a variety of grade levels and I was differentiating, I have like a folder for pre-K and a folder for kinder and, you know, just ideas that I could share with them at different levels. And it's just such an easy way to gather information in little bits. It's engaging. You're staring at your phone anyway. <laughs> you might as well learn something, right? No. And 
I love it because I actually, and sometimes I put some of that out for staff. So I actually might link an, an Instagram reel for them to watch that might be entertaining, but gets across something in a different way. And they can find eight seconds to watch that. I what they can't always find is a long time to read an article. Yeah, that is such a good idea. I bet they really love that. They would, they'll, they'll click a reel. My husband sends me things all the time. He's like, look at this thing I learned about today. They will. And that's also how you get to your next generation of people. And we've actually been, we've created some reels in our, in our office. I put out reels myself for people because it is a way to get to a wide range of people and, and what they like. And so you're really trying to find those ways because you could, it's just like your curriculum. You have the best curriculum, but if you can't deliver it, you can't engage with students. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I could have all the best knowledge in the world and get together a, a great group of people. But if we can't share that, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Nobody will be able to grow. Yep. So I think that this, this question I'm going to ask you about these four steps to facing hard truths. I think mm-hmm. that's an Instagram post that I saw you share. It is. Yes. In my folder of podcast guests. <laughs> Possible guests for the podcast because mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about it. So can you talk to us a little bit about the four steps to facing hard truths? Yeah. In education, we have hard truths to face. If you look anywhere on social media or the news, they all like to tell us our hard truths, but we have our own hard truths um, to look at. And, and mine aren't the same as theirs. Like, I don't think that um, education is broken. I think that it needs uh it needs change, but it's, it's not about tearing the whole thing down. And so we all have to face our own hard truths. Sometimes depending on the day, that might be a situation that I've gotten myself in with a staff member, or it could be about a hard truth about um, a, cur- a curricular effort that I made that didn't work out well. And I have to go look to see why this didn't roll out, how I needed it to, and why it didn't get what I wanted. So the very first thing is starting with, obviously you have to start with self-reflection. And so um, an example I'll give is a principal conversation that I have that didn't go well and it didn't feel well during it or after it. And it just, there was nothing about it that I felt good about. And the first thing I do was self-reflect on it. So that means you have to look at yourself And so that's the part that is unfun because when you have a conversation that didn't go well, you, you know, the star of your own show is how the other person was unreasonable or incompetent or whatever words you want to use in it that are not helpful to moving forward. So the first thing I had to do was look at my own feelings and my own motivations with what happened in that phone conversation. And what they said and what I said, what they did, what I did, and keep thinking through that and how we both had a part to play in what happens. But the fact is I'm in an even higher leadership role than that. I have a big piece of that that I have to think through. Then there's acceptance. So you have to self-reflect and then you have to accept. And what you have to think through and accept is there are parts of this. I mean, it's happened. I can't pretend it didn't happen. Now, I know leaders out in the world who will pretend something didn't happen and will act like nothing, there was no bad conversation and everything was great, but that doesn't grow anything. It just breeds a grossness. You just want to avoid each other. So one thing, the next thing you have to do is accept, and I've got to think through that experience and the value of it. And what really stinks 
is that when we make a mistake and those parts that don't go well is when we learn the most. I wish it didn't work that way, but it does. Every time I've made a mistake, I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to do a whole lot of learning this time. And so I learn a lot from those about things to not, don't do that again, or not in that situation. And then I have to redouble my efforts about it. So I really do have to self-respect and then accept this happened. And this was my part in it. And I have to admit to it. Then I need to, sometimes I still have to get further distance. So, so the situation with my phone call that didn't go well, I didn't have anything. I had to talk to them again right away. Mm -hmm. But part of that gaining clarity and taking distance from that was like, is that all, was there more at play there that goes on? Is this more about an ongoing pattern that you have with other people? Thank goodness it wasn't. Is it more of a pattern I have with this particular person or was it the topic that came up? Mm -hmm. What was it? And sometimes when you, when you take that step back, you can get more clarity about your patterns and what do my, how do my patterns play into what was happening in the situation that you're in? And so then after that, my next piece though, is focusing on what can be changed and paying attention to it. So in the situation, the principal, I couldn't change what has already happened. Mm-hmm. I can't change what they feel about what happened in the moment. So the fact is that first feeling that is going to be their strongest and it's going to be the one that they are going to carry with them. So I'm looking at what I could change. I can apologize and you have to think through apologies um, because sometimes apologies are self-serving and they actually don't help the other person. So I'm not saying that you don't just not apologize, but you need to think through is the apology going to be helpful or actually will the apology make it worse? Cause it was more about me than what they needed. And you have to think through that. And then it has to be about like, what can I change? I can change the way I talk to them next time. I can change how long it is before I go talking to them again. Do I need to do repair, which means I need to engage myself in a conversation with them sooner rather than later, whether it's about that topic or not. And so you really do need to take all those steps because that hard truth is I affected a relationship with another professional that could have profound effects into the future if I don't figure out how to not repeat that again. You don't want somebody who's not going to call you for help. Mm-hmm. So whether that's in my role as administrator or a role as an instructional coach, you want people to continue to contact you. Mm-hmm. And so you do have to think through this happened. I did part of it. Here's what I need to do in the future to keep working through that. And it doesn't mean that you're a pushover or that you only think Pollyanna good thoughts about everything, but you have to be realistic about what has happened and what you need to do to move forward. And that requires you to be honest with yourself and sometimes honest to the people around you and say, I had this conversation and it didn't go well and not just fall into a reflection with somebody else, which is gonna be like, yeah, I don't like that person either. Or yeah, it was hard to, for me to talk with them too. That's not helpful. We're all individual people. So not falling into that, but falling into, yeah, but I did this and it didn't feel good. And maybe in the moment I wanted to show that I had power in the situation. I wanted to put them in their place, but man, what did that do for me? Mm-hmm. nothing. And it's the same kind of reflection we want our teachers to have with their students. So we have to engage in it too. 
we can engage in it because it's hard to really see your piece in everything that's happened. It is. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to look at yourself without the bias and to own the actions that you brought own what you brought to the table and be like, man, I messed that up. <laughs> or, or, and it doesn't mean you're fully <laughs> responsible, right? But you could have implemented, you could have done it doesn't. to make a different outcome or at least try to make a different yes. outcome. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the same thing we look in student behavior. It's like, we have a, we have a role to play in that. We can't always affect it, but there are times we can. Mm-hmm. And there's, and whenever we ruin relationships, that always makes it hard, but the same thing is true as curriculum. I had a curriculum rollout that didn't work how I planned. And now we're going back to figure out, okay, where did it not work? What should we have done differently? Mm-hmm. Because I'm always going to assume that that was in how we rolled it out. Not necessarily the teachers you rolled it out to they're busy and they have other things. We didn't speak to enough people to get this in the way that we imagined, or maybe we imagined it wrong. And that's what we have to go back and take a look at always. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you if there was a specific process that we can follow to support self-reflection, but I feel like that's what you just gave us. Mm-hmm. Is that <laughs> okay? <laughs> Basically, well, I mean, while it's about facing a hard truth, it is part uh-huh. of your self. It is a self-reflective step. Mm-hmm. in the whole thing. That's how you face it. So I agree with you there. It's, okay. it still is following all those and looking to see and gaining that clarity all the time to do better next time. I really like Once that. we know better, we do better. Yeah. I, yeah. We have to acknowledge it and then we have to decide to change it. So I really like those four questions that you put. I feel like that would be something you could stick on your laptop or like, you, you know, type it up, mm-hmm. write it out and put it on, you know, stick it inside of your notebook. I carried my notebook everywhere. So I'm a big proponent of having, yes. a notebook. um, but having whatever you have, wherever you sit to do your thinking about life, you know, across the wall from the potty, wherever it needs to go, you know, <laughs> put it somewhere visible. So you can, you can call that to mind. And we can always be reminded, mm-hmm. well, what can we do differently? We have some, like, I would always ask the teachers, okay, who's the only one in the room that you can control? You can't control the kids. You can't control any other adults. You can only control your own actions. And even that is hard to do. So what can we do? You know, what can you do in this situation? It's the same thing. What can we do? I love it. So absolutely. It's just being human. Yeah, it is. That's right. Um, and so how can we take what we realize through maybe this reflective process and use it to make lasting change? Because I'm thinking about new year's resolutions and anything like that, you know, goals that people set in August and they're gone by, you know, the end of October, if that, um, and we have good intentions and we reflect and we say, this is what we're going to do this year. And this is how we're going to tackle it. And then it's just life happens. Like you said, we're human and it just, Mm -hmm. it's just gone. So how do we make lasting change? Yeah. I think the first thing is, you know, first don't think smaller. And I know that sounds awful because I want people to think big, but we always bite off more than we can chew in a new year's resolution. Always, you know, it's never about losing one pound. It's about losing 50. And so we set ourselves up down this road that the payoff is so far down the road that you know, you can't see how to get there. And we allow no room for error, even though we're human. And I, I say that all the time, like working, like we all make mistakes. And sometimes our resolutions, we don't allow for it. Mm -hmm. One of the things you, you mentioned is is one of the most important, which is write it down and write it where you can see it, Mm -hmm. make it small, 
meaningful that I can grow. So right now I want to grow on better conversations. So how I'm making it small to start off with is about, I am just trying to make sure that I look at one new strategy a month. So it isn't any bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you get super excited at the beginning and you, you look at 25 strategies. Well, I can't put in 25, 25 strategies into account. I need to take a look at one thing that I can do, make it small, post it everywhere, find videos on it. Heck, because I do an Instagram, you know, I have an Instagram page. I make a post on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, take it into learning and use it. But you've got to make it bite-sized and all these little bites that you'll take will turn into something big, but not if you're too worried thinking about, I want to be able to have a conversation with a staff member about something that they're not doing well and get them to realize it. And that's my goal for the next month. That's not a smart goal. You don't change anybody within a month. And you need to think small, like what's a small thing. I want to make a connection with somebody. I want to go out of my way to talk to a staff member. I usually avoid their classroom. I know they don't like me. I'm going to find a way to talk to them, but we're going to, I'm going to talk to them at lunch. Or I'm going to talk to them in the hallway. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take, ter- I'm just going to stay high. You have to make something small always. And I, and I know I, you know, I work at a district level position where I'm always thinking big, but for my personal growth, I have to start and I have to think of it as being very small. I also think too, you've got to get to what you value, not just what you think other people want you to change. So focusing for me on better conversations is nothing. Anybody's told me to change. Like I don't get where people, nobody's told me I don't have good conversations. I have my own judgments about how I do. I have made a value that I want to be able to do or feel like I'm doing a better job with people that when I'm connecting with them, that it is a true connection. I need different ways to do that. It feels stale in the way I'm doing it. So make it have it be something that's a value of you for you. Not that my principal wants me to uh, make sure that I coach 20 people in 20 days. That's that's not a value to anybody. It's got to be a value to you personally in how you do these. And I like to take a page from advertisers, cult leaders, whatever you want to look at. And I immerse myself. So I'm a, that's where I get into, like, I'm going to look up all this stuff on TikTok and Instagram, and I'm going to immerse myself because guess what? All my ads in Facebook, then will all be about this stuff too. Every time I look up something, it all comes up, immerse yourself in the one thing that you want to spend more time doing. And then you'll see the pattern of it anywhere. You'll could watch a TV show and you'll be like, wow, the way he entered that conversation, I need to write that down in my notebook that I carry <laughs> everywhere. And I'm going to write that down. Cause now that's all I see it everywhere and I can help grow those pieces. And so I think immerse yourself just like social media has learned how to get us immersed to get us to buy something that we don't necessarily need. So I I think I don't have a, a, like, you know, follow this list. It's what do you value, write it down and immerse yourself in it in small ways, but keep it small that you can actually do. Otherwise you will give up on it. You'll give up on it easy. I have a whole list of things I wrote down that I wanted to accomplish by the end of the year. 
I haven't looked at all those things (laughs) because you needed to immerse yourselves in the ones that were most important. It was too many things, Mm -hmm. too much. Mm -hmm. I love it. So what is the first thing an instructional coach should do tomorrow to start a reflective process? I think first is thinking through what your questions are going to be for yourself. Mm -hmm. And even if you're borrowing from others and you're tossing out, you're getting rid of questions as you don't think that they feed you. I think what the first thing we do is write down what your questions are. Otherwise in the moment or after the moment, you won't think of them. It won't be the first thing you think of doing. Yeah. And so, you know, we first start being reflective. The first thing is we're, we're unaware. Mm -hmm. The next piece is, is that we start to pay attention. So write down your questions. Is it, you know, why do I feel the way I do? Why did they, why did they react that way? And why did I react that way? Mm-hmm. And then observe. So as structural coaches, we know structural coaches serve as part of what they do to figure out the lay of the land and what's happening. I have data, but I also need to see some things, mm-hmm. see what this looks like in your classroom, see how you, how you run your class or how you have relationships, observe it and make sure that you're looking for what you think are the motivations behind the different people that you're seeing in there and why are they doing what they're doing in the classroom and looking at its effect on kids. And you want to go from that questions to observing and then go back to your questions that you wrote down previously and start going through them. You know, when I, when I engaged in this coaching conversation that didn't go the way I wanted it to go in the moment, Why did I, why did they react that way? When I said this, why did I feel like I needed to tell them what they were doing wrong and what, and instead of asking them what they thought they needed to have some coaching on, Mm -hmm. why did I direct that conversation? Um, And you may have good reasons for it, but you won't know till you reflect to think about why is that the tact that I took, but write your darn questions down. And be okay with getting rid of questions that don't serve you in, in how you go through this and hone it into what it is you want to see, but you got to think through the questions. Otherwise this will always be, um, something that you won't focus on. You're going to have to make those questions concrete because self-reflection is not concrete in and of itself. So you need to write them down. Yes. Um, that's so great. I feel like I feel people writing them down. I can feel people in the world writing the questions down right now because they are going to hold on to those. They're going to be so helpful. I do have a bonus question that I want to ask you because as an instructional coach, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. Um, <laughs> I was a self, I was a, a classroom teacher, a, a general ed teacher. I always had special education students in my classroom. One year I did a co-teaching model. I loved it. It was incredibly stressful, but it was great. So I'm wondering as a coach, you know, what are some things that, that coaches can do to be especially supportive of special education teachers? Because we're not always mm-hmm. trained, like you mentioned earlier, we're not always the expert in those things, um, in those specific areas, but what could they do to be supportive? Right. I think one of the first things that I think through that I've learned in my journey in administration mm-hmm. um, is that depending on the training of special education teachers you have they actually may not have been trained in, in just basics, like the teaching and learning cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I've noticed that in the in staff that I've interviewed and different PD that we've done is that I have made assumptions that my staff all understand that you have to assess students. Mm-hmm. You teach them, you're assessing some more 
in an effort to save time, sometimes we're forget, we're not doing the assessing pieces. And so we're teaching, 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 teaching without understanding of what might be in there. So I think one of the biggest things is as much as instructional coaches may not feel like they're the expert in special ed, special education teachers may not feel like they're the expert in actually how you help kids learn. And that understanding that that cycle is no different for a student with a disability. We may have to make some accommodation to it. Um, We may have to make some adjustments, but in the end, how humans learn is how humans learn. And so I think that that is something that it would be a good partnership between an instructional coach and a special ed teacher. I have found a number of special education teachers that were never trained in writing units or lessons. Mm -hmm. And that was not part, depending on where they went to school. I'll tell you in my, my master's in special education, and I went to you know, a research one facility school, it was very theoretical. Nobody taught me how to write a a lesson or a unit. And so that is something that I think is important to know. I think sometimes we make assumptions that the teacher can follow along with that and they may actually not know um, what that is. I think um, another good one though, is about the content itself. Special ed teachers don't tend to be content experts. I I did I had a degree in language arts, so I actually taught self-contained language arts for a few years, but I also taught math, so that wasn't my area. And when I was having to slow down instruction to a degree where I may have to actually remove parts of instruction, Mm -hmm. we really need an instructional coach to help us with that. You know, what parts really are the building blocks for the next thing and what aren't? Because I might make a decision that is wrong and focus way too much time on something that isn't a needed skill for later in life. I think of right now, some conversation we're having in some of our self-contained classes is, do you use pennies to pay for a lot of stuff out at the store? We spend years on pennies and nickels and dimes. And we spend years on analog clocks with some of our kids. And is that the best use of our time? And sometimes we need help and we need help with that perspective. After a while, we teach special ed, we no longer have a perspective of what it looks like in general ed. Sometimes we are too hard on our kids that actually it's more similar to what it can be with the variety of general education. And sometimes we've lost perspective on those things or gosh, we're teaching handshakes where nobody, no no middle school kid is shaking hands. Mm. So that isn't a good thing for us to teach. So I think it's that partnership between that teaching and learning cycle. What is important? What are those important strands that we have to keep teaching? And frankly, don't shy away from us. We're not scary. I think it's even when you see some of our classes and I know, you know, you get a degree in special ed and in my state it's K-12 and I can teach any part of it. Well, there's so many different jobs in special education. So I was more cross-categorical. So I taught kids that were more in class than in class or co-teaching, or they were in a self-contained level, but still it was general ed curriculum that I was modifying. But, you know, there are students that, you know, that have multiple disabilities and things like that. And I have made myself spend more time in those classes throughout my career to be less scared. And that would be the the advice I would give to instructional coaches go into those classrooms. Mm -hmm. The teaching and learning cycle is no different and go in there and even just check in on your fellow special ed teacher. They feel isolated and alone. 
And so it's always good to be a check-in to see if there's anything they need, or maybe you just learn a little bit from each other. Yes. That would be my advice. Yes. Those partnerships can be so great. And, and all the things that you're talking about, that's exactly, whenever I work with special ed teachers, that's exactly what we did. It's, we would say, okay, they would say, what are they, how do they do this in the other classrooms? So I have a starting point mm-hmm. and then I can take it from there, you know, um, having special ed yes. teachers sit in with, with general ed teachers and plan together whenever they're planning their lessons was mm-hmm. so valuable and schools weren't doing it for a long time. And then we started doing no. this. It's, it's, it's unreal. It's just crazy to me. Like, well, yes. And I'm worried that will go away again, as you're seeing, you know, teacher shortages in yeah. lots of areas, but it's also special education that yeah. as you have less of those, I'm worried that we will lose some of the good strides that we made, yeah. which will be even so much more important for us to have good relationships amongst mm-hmm. each other. That's right. Well, I, I think they're doing a beautiful job in spreading the word. Uh, about all of this. And so how can people find you online or in the real world so they can continue to learn? Where where I put out the most information is on my, uh, on my Instagram account. And that is doctor, which is DR period. And then Jill Brown, my full name on there. And that's where I I post, I post Monday through Friday on there. And then people can uh, DM me as they need to on there. And there's also a link tree on there with links to my clubhouse room because you can also find us on Clubhouse, where um, I have a club called the Special Education Catalyst that we host a room every every couple of weeks. And in that, it's open to regular education or general education, as well as special education. We have parents. We will have people from all different fields because we talk about kind of, gosh, just the real stuff about working with kids with disabilities and um, looking to see that, you know, first of all, they're kids first, they're everybody's kid. And what can we do um, as we're trying to hone our skills with populations of kids and different disabilities that you may not have heard of before? So that's also a good place. I have a much smaller presence on Twitter, but I'm on t- Twitter as well as Dr. Jill Brown one. And then we're looking to uh, put out a podcast here in the next couple months. And that will be on my link tree and on my Instagram when we're ready to do that. Well, send it to me when you do, and we'll link it in the show notes. Absolutely. We're, we're looking forward to it. Me, me and one of the, one of our other ones who is a, a BCBA, we are going to work uh, and talk about how we are going to work from shifting perspectives uh, from within the schoolhouse. I love it. Okay. Yes. Definitely send that to me and we'll, we'll send mm-hmm. it out. All right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I loved our conversation and you provided us with so many good ideas. Thank you. I love talking to you and I love your program. All right, coach, that was some good stuff. And I really hope that you either already wrote the four questions down, those four um, steps to accepting hard truths or uh, reflecting on hard truths. Go back to those if you didn't, because that is great stuff. And it definitely needs to go in your coaching notebook. So look at your calendar and really think about a day and time where you're going to start this process and it can be tomorrow, right? But we want to make sure that we note it on the calendar, that we make a little note and say, let's use these four questions to start thinking about this interaction that we have. I just think that's a great tip and I really don't want you to miss out. So make sure you make a plan for implementing those four questions and thinking about how you're going to implement that self-reflective process. I want you to know that I have a couple other resources that could be helpful for you as you are undergoing this self-reflective process, okay? Episode 28 
is actually coaching for equity with Elena Aguilar, but she talks a lot about our interactions with teachers and how we can be supportive of them. So you can use that to kind of show a, or give a cast a reflective lens over the work that you're doing with teachers and see if there's some areas that you would like to grow in. Another episode that's really great for this is episode 58. That's about collecting feedback from teachers with Erin Cotman. And in that episode, we talk about some of these same topics, but with a different spin and thinking about how we can get input from teachers on your coaching work to help you reflect and set goals for your future work. I also have a resource in my TPT store. It's teacher feedback surveys for instructional coaching, and it includes printable and Google forms for teacher input. A great way to close out the year, get some good responses from teachers, figure out where they are in relation to the work that you've been doing so you can really reflect and make a plan for your approach next year. I have a free download for you too called Reflecting on Your Coaching Year. So if you go to buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 102, you can grab that download Reflecting on Your Coaching Year and it gives you some questions that you can use to think about how this year went and what you might like to do next year. In the next episode, we're going to keep looking back by and, and talking about how we can support teachers in reflecting on their work. I'm actually chatting with Lorraine Padilla of Apple Blossom Teachers, and we're going to talk about how we can prepare for reflective conversations, how we can support teachers in reflecting on their own work, how we can keep reflective conversations from turning into a gripe fest, that's a big one between you and me, and how we can encourage teachers to really take that reflection and turn it into action. So I look forward to that episode. That's episode 103 that comes out next week. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching.